What's up, everybody? This is Daniel Atondo. I'm the lead pastor at Eden Church, and we're so excited that you've joined us on the Eden Podcast. The next 30 minutes, we hope, will add value to your life, deepen your connections to others, but most importantly, we want to help you grow in your faith. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. All right, well, this morning, we're going to start off our conversation today by getting really, really honest. Now, I know when I say that, that probably makes you feel really uncomfortable, right? I feel like I get more nervous about being honest at church than I do anywhere else, but we're going to get a little bit honest, not completely honest. But if you're like me, you probably have this embarrassing moment from your past that you wish never happened. Like you can probably right now think in your mind like this embarrassing moment from high school or middle school that you wish was no longer part of your history. I had one of those moments when I was six years old, and it's not that embarrassing, but I remember I was six years old, and I tried to, I painted one of my fingers red because I wanted to trick my uncle into thinking that I had somehow bloodied my finger. I don't remember what the story was exactly, but I painted it red, and I went over to him, and he was not impressed at all, and in fact, this was like one of the most unimpressive, mischievous things that a six-year-old has ever done. It was not well thought out. It was impulsive, and he wasn't impressed, but he did think it was really, really funny. In fact, he has never forgotten how funny it was uh, because for the next 12 years, all throughout my high school career, every time I saw him at like a family reunion or some kind of event where all the family was getting together, the first thing he would do, he wouldn't say a word to me. He would just grab my hands, and he would look for the bloodied finger. He never forgot about it. He thought it was real funny. But the other thing that was apparent also is that I apparently didn't do anything else in those next 12 years that was more memorable than trying to paint my finger red. (laughs) But it's so interesting when I think about that because every time he saw me, he saw me through the lens of that experience. He saw me through the lens of that one moment, that one little slice of my life. And for the rest of my life, that's like the lens that he saw me as this little boy painting his finger red to try to make his uncle laugh. And I think it's weird how that one decision, one decision maybe in your life, can inform someone's view of who you are for the rest of your life. And I think that for a lot of us, that reality perhaps may be painful. Maybe you made a bad decision in high school, and as soon as you got out of town, you thought in your mind, I am never going to show my face in my own hometown again. Honestly, Since we're being honest this morning, that was like one of the things I had to prep my wife for when we moved back to the Bay Area. I said, sweetie, I really wasn't always someone who followed Jesus very closely. You just need to anticipate that you're going to run into people that may know things about me that we haven't yet talked about. Now, I'm open to sharing everything with my wife, but there are just parts of your past where you're just like really nervous. And I'm serious, like this is true of me today. If I see someone that I know at the gym, I get so, I just... I'm like, man, at some point they're going to ask me, what do I do for a living? And I'm going to have to tell them. You know, I tried to make up these little nonprofit leader titles before, and it just got more awkward. And, um, and I could always, and this is what always happens. I see someone that I know from high school, and I see them, and we're talking, small talk. And then eventually they get to the question, what do you do? And I begrudgingly say, well, you know, I'm a pastor. And I'm really thankful. I'm, I love being a pastor. But I could sort of see the wheels turning in their eyes And sort of this process happening where they're trying to put these two diabolically 
oppose realities together, Daniel in high school and a pastor starting a church. How do those two things become one? But maybe that's your story, right? Maybe there are things in your past that you wish no one would ever attribute to your identity again. Maybe there was a time where you were in a relationship and you acted outside of your character. And from this point forward, from that point forward, when that relationship began, now that person is always going to see you through the light of that one moment in your life. Maybe you've done things in your life that nobody else knows about. And nobody else sees you through that lens, but you see yourself through that lens every time you wake up in the morning and you look yourself in the mirror. There are so many of us that are living our lives today that only see ourselves through the lens of our greatest mistakes and our worst failures. And if that's you this morning, here's what I want you to know. Number one, you are not alone. You are not on a path that any of us have never traveled down before. We have all been through this path where we are trying to understand how not to let the negative voices in our lives out, shout out and scream out the truth about who we really are. Number two, you don't have to stay there. Sometimes in the chaos of our life, we feel stuck in who we are and what we've been and how we've defined our lives in the past, but you have to know that you do not have to stay there. And number three, and this is really the point of the entire conversation this morning, is that the one person whose opinion really matters does not view your life the way that you do. The one person whose opinion really matters doesn't see you the way that you see yourself. Over the last few weeks, we've been in a series that has, we've been calling Influencers. And if you know anything about like what shapes culture, particularly among some of the younger generations, is that like social media is this thing that is helping to shape and define what we value in our society and in our culture. And there are people who have like so much influence over what we wear and where we eat and where we go on vacation and what we do in our lives. And these are what we call influencers. But what's interesting is if you look in God's strategy to reach the world, we notice that there's sort of a similar strategy that God used for history. And so what we've been doing is over the last few weeks is we've been looking at some of the greatest influencers in human history and how God has used these people to leverage their faith to shape culture toward him. And we've been focusing on this small portion of an ancient letter that's recorded and documented in the Bible. And so just to get those of you who maybe have been in and out, get you up to speed, we've been in a letter that was written to this community of people that were questioning whether or not they were capable of doing hard things. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that. Sometimes my wife and I think, should we have a third child? We don't know if we're capable of doing hard things. <laughs> but these people were questioning whether or not they could continue down this path that they chose. And this was a community of people that were defined as the Hebrews. And what that meant is that they basically ordered their lives around this really important text called the Torah. And it really defined sort of the basic principles of how they operated as a community. Well, one day, each of these people came into contact with a person named Jesus. And it really began to redefine reality for them as they knew it. Because they had never experienced life and hope and in reality to the degree that they did when they encountered this person, Jesus. 
And so the conflict that they're wrestling with is whether or not they continue to pursue Jesus or they sink back into some of these old habits from the culture that they came from. And they knew that they either chose Jesus and had to step out of that culture or they remained in the culture and they had to forsake this experience that they had with Jesus. And the reason why there was conflict is because they knew that if they chose to continue to step into this life of faith in Jesus, then there was going to be adversity in their life. And some of you have experienced that before, making some of those hard decisions in your life. Like maybe your whole life you've had an Android phone. And then you used your Apple friend, your friend's Apple phone and you realize there's a better way. Like there's a better way to live and experience life. But you knew that when all your friends found out that you were now an Apple user, you've drank, you drank the Kool-Aid, there would be trouble to pay. Now, it's not that insignificant, but, but that's sort of what they were experiencing. They were surrounded by a culture of people that they were ready to abandon that way of thinking and to pursue what Jesus had for them. And the author of this ancient letter is encouraging them. He's saying, keep doing what you're doing. The decision that you made to follow Jesus is not going to be an easy one. There is going to be adversity along the way. But I just want you to know that the path that you're taking is the right choice. You are making the right decision even though it's difficult. Even though every part of your circumstance is telling you that you have made the wrong decision. And so the portion of this letter that we've been looking at over the last several weeks has been the portion where this author is beginning to highlight all these different examples of people who have gone down a similar path and who have overcome difficulty in their life as a result of their faith. And so it's been a conversation about people who have learned to do hard things because they've leaned on God with faith. And so over the last few weeks, we've talked about Noah, we've talked about Abraham and Sarah and Rahab. And I want us to look at the way that the author ends this portion of the letter. And it's in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 through 38. And this is what it says. It says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. So he's describing like this history, this lineage of people who had this deep faith. And when I read this passage, it's actually kind of funny to me because I'm like, I know that this guy was a pastor. And I know he was a pastor because he tried to fit more content in an amount of time that he didn't have, right? Like he takes this deep breath at the very end and he says, what more shall I say? And he tries to squeeze out all of his good illustrations in one talk. But that's what he says. He said, what more can I say? I think I've made my point, but if I have and I want to leave this here, I want you to know that you are coming from a lineage of people in your history who have great faith. 
that they have trusted and ordered their lives in a way to see the promise fulfilled. And what I love about this paragraph is it makes me sort of a little nostalgic because I love that this guy is highlighting all the people who were part of the movement at the early stage before anyone really knew what this was about. These, this group of people had like committed that, that their experience with God was so profound that even though they couldn't see what the promise was going to look to, like, they were willing to organize their lives around that truth. And it makes me think like, I'm not comparing Eden to this, but whatever Eden is in 20 years, I imagine that we're going to be telling hero stories of people who in the early stages of this church had great faith before we ever started meeting. There were people who were showing up and helping us get the word out. They believed before they ever saw a church exist. And in light of today, we're going to go pass out some flyers around the neighborhood to let people know about Easter. And it reminds me of James Frederick. James Frederick has basically served on nearly every team in this church, he's been a part of kids, he's been a part of a bunch of our outreach ministry, service projects to the community. He's done so many different things. But I remember three years before we ever, three years ago, before we ever had service, James and I were walking the apartment complex right across the street here, hanging door hangers, inviting people to a community movie that we were hosting. And I think about how much of an encouragement he was in that season in the life of our church. Because he sacrificed his time, he sacrificed his resources, he was showing up to all these extra things, he was dealing and battling with so many things in his career, but he always made time to be a part of the vision and the mission of this church because he believed that God would use his life to do something powerful. And I love the way that this author really begins to talk about the criteria for what it means to be a hero in that community. And no one was a hero in that place without sacrifice, without the willingness to step into personal adversity in their circumstance. And I think about what it takes every single week to get this church going, and I'm like, we serve with a bunch of heroes that are at work every single week, they're busting their backs 50, 60, 70 hours a week, and then they show up early on a Sunday morning, and they're sweating, and they're stinky before service, before we ask them to start meeting everybody that walks into this place. And I'm like, we are in the midst of people who, who are heroes in this community, who we will continue to tell stories about as Eden continues to grow and have influence in this community. It will be on the faith and the back and the hope that was in the hearts of people who believed what God can do through us now, even though we couldn't see it in the future. And this is really where we begin to learn a little bit about how God sees us differently than we see ourselves. The first way that we know this is that God sees our faith instead of our failures. God sees our faith instead of our failures. In verse 39, it says that these were all commended for their faith. All of these people that he lists in this passage were known because of their faith. We live in a culture today where people are famous for being famous right? Not, these guys weren't famous for being famous. These people were famous because of their faith. They were influencers because of this great moment of sacrifice in their life. But this is what I love about this passage. This is what I love about every person that is listed in the hall of faith is that not one of these people are a picture of perfection by any of our standards. 
Like these are all people who in their past had those moments that were super embarrassing. These were all people who in their past had moments that they wish were no longer tied to their identity. And I want to read between the lines here. That despite every detail that God knew about their life, he saw them for their faith instead of their failures. And I think about us. And I think about how we see ourselves when we wake up in the morning. I think about all the words that we tell ourselves throughout the course of a day. What we're speaking into our minds. What we're allowing other people to speak over us. And then I want to compare that to what God says about who we are. Because as much as God knew about all the details and all the failures of these people's lives, he knows all those details about our lives. He knows the thoughts that we think when no one else is around. He knows how we feel about our coworker who talks really, really loud. He knows how we feel about the guy at the gym who talks on the phone like nobody else is around. Maybe that's just me. God knows that about me. But God doesn't see your divorce. God doesn't see your grades. He doesn't see your job performance review. He doesn't see how much you get paid. He doesn't see your relationship status. He doesn't see how many children you have. He sees your faith. That is what God chooses to see about who you are. And I hope that if there's anything that that we take away from the conversation this morning is that God wants to frame your life in the same exact way. That when we trust Jesus, he sees our faith and he doesn't see our failures that have defined our identity in our past. I don't know how good that is for you to know, but when I read that, I walk around the city of Sunnyvale, my hometown, with a little bit more confidence. That I'm not defined by my failures in my past. In fact, my failures are a testimony of what God has actually done in my life. Number two, God sees your faith even when we don't see the promise. God sees your faith even when we don't see the promise. He says, yet none of them received what had been promised to them. That these were all people who were known for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised to them. A few years ago, maybe it was like five or ten years ago, I have very horrible chronological time, so unless like I really look back at a calendar, I don't know when it was, but this was five to ten years ago. I was at Six Flags in Santa Clarita, and I was waiting in line for like the main ride that you go on, and I literally waited two and a half hours to go on this ride, and then what happens? I was the next person to sit on the seat, and the ride closed down. I wasted two and a half hours for a reward that I would never receive. But can you imagine if that was true about your life? That these guys had ordered, these people had ordered their lives to be faithful around a promise that they would never see come into fruition in their lifetime. They trusted God. They believed that he was leading him to do something wonderful. And all of a sudden, they lost their life, some of them. And something is interesting. Because if you know the biography of any of the people that were listed in Hebrews chapter 11, then you know that there is at least some inconsistency with this is saying about the biography that you know about their past. Because when we looked at Abraham and when we looked at Sarah, when we looked at Rahab and Noah, in some ways, each of these people received part of the promise. 
right? Abraham and Sarah received this child. It was a significant amount of time later, but eventually they gave birth to a child in their old age. Noah preserved his own life and the life of his family. Rahab did the same. And so in some sense, they were rewarded for their faithfulness. But what was it that they didn't receive? What promise did they not have given to them? They didn't receive the promise of what their faithfulness would lead to. Sometimes we have like this immediate promise that we get, but then sometimes God shows us that we're actually part of a bigger story, that maybe our bit of faithfulness is carrying on the vision of God for one generation. It was really powerful when uh, we decided that we were going to plant a church. Now, I don't know if this person meant what he said, but what he said was really powerful. And this was the guy who really was a mentor to me. We wrestled in college together. He was my roommate. And he was probably the person in my life who had the greatest spiritual influence up in that, to that point than any other person in my life. And in fact, he, he spoke here about a year ago. His name was Brian Busby. And he said something so profound to me, so humbling, and uh, something that has shifted my perspective when I think about philo- my philosophy of ministry, how we operate as a church. He said, Daniel, I was driving to work today. And I had this thought in my mind. He said, what if God allowed me to come to faith just to help you grow in your faith, just so that you could start a church in Silicon Valley? And the thing that was powerful about that posture is that he realized that he wasn't the hero of God's story that he just played a part, that actually his life was meant to help other people come into a place, uh, in a position where they can experience what God has for them and then for, them to, for, for those people to live out God's calling on their life. And that shaped the way that we operate even here at Eden Church, that really it is not about any one of us leaders, but the goal for every person in leadership in our church is to make sure that we're helping people to experience what God has for their life. That it's not about us. That we are not the hero of God's stories. We're not the heroes of this church. It is actually the, all that God wants to do through this community and in every individual life. And so they didn't receive the promise. They only played a part of the vision that God wanted to carry out in their life. And I think... Maybe from their perspective, it was possible to feel cheated, to feel like they had been so faithful for so long, and they never saw what God was going to do at the end. And I wonder for some of us if that's ever been part of our struggle with faith. Maybe you've been faithful in your marriage, and it still ended in divorce, horrible, painful process of divorce, despite your commitment Maybe some of you have continued to engage in family relationships. No matter how toxic they are, every time you get together, it is just like a beating for your soul, but you keep showing up hoping that somehow you're going to influence it and make it a healthy culture, but you are losing hope every, with every passing year that you're going to actually help the situation. There are some of you that have been committed parents. Like from the very earliest time 
as you were raising your children, you tried to make sure that they were part of the community of faith and that you were planting seeds of hope and truth in their life. And now they're in adulthood and they're choosing to do their own thing. And every time you hear from it, it is like this crushing, crushing news. And you just wonder, God, what, what happened? Maybe some of you have tried to live with integrity in your career and you've not seen the growth that you hoped you would see. And some of you are upset at family. Some of you are upset at friends. Some of you are frustrated at yourselves. And some of you are even frustrated with God. Like, God, out of everything that I've tried to do to order my life around walking in obedience to you, walking in alignment with your plan, do you not see the struggle that I'm going through every single night? Do you not see the pain and the loneliness, do you not realize that, God, every night I go to bed, I feel hopeless about this life? And sometimes we can feel as though there is no hope. Does God even know what's going on? And I think that it was possible for this group to have felt that pressure. Do you see what we're going through? Where is the promise? But then we're reminded in the very next verse that when God sees your faith, he sees your faith forever. In verse 40 it says, Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That's kind of confusing. But what he's saying is that just because they didn't see the promise in their lifetime fulfilled doesn't mean that God didn't have a plan to fulfill their promise in the next life. God had a perfect plan that they would experience the fullness of his love in eternity. It was this future glory that he had been preparing for them all along and the goal for them was just to continue to be faithful at every single season of their life regardless of what their circumstance told them was true and because of their faith they received the reward the hope and the peace and the purpose that they had always longed for it's crazy it's so crazy how sometimes one decision in our life can either leave a legacy of failure or a legacy of faith. It can leave a legacy that seems to destroy and take away from the identity and the truth about who God says we are, or it is the very thing that captures the essence of our identity in God. And it all happens in one moment. But this is how God sees us. And what he wants for you is nothing more but to know how much he values your life. How much he loves you and cares for you. How much he has sacrificed on your behalf. How much he has orchestrated in your life to be here in this moment right now. And there are some of us in this room today that would have never thought that we would have stepped foot in a place like this. And I hope that the fact that you are here right now is evidence that there is a God who longs for you 
and who was pursuing you and who was willing to do all this complicated stuff to make sure that you were hearing these words right now. That he loves you and that you're not alone and that you're not stuck. And the way you see yourself, the only person whose opinion really matters doesn't see you in the same way. But all of this is really true only for those who have courageously stepped into that space of faith. Who have stepped into that moment where you've come to the point in your life where you are saying, I trust Jesus to give me purpose. I'm going to trust God to give me hope because everything else that I have tried in my life to give significance to what I do has seemed to fail. And in fact, it has actually left me feeling more empty than when I first started. And so that is all that God is calling you into, is to trust that who he says you are is more true than who you think you are. To trust that he loves you more than you can possibly know. And that is evidenced by the fact that he sent his son to die on the cross so that all of the shame and all of the guilt that we have built up in our hearts over the course of the last few decades of our life in a moment can be washed away. To be made clean. To be freed from the burden of regret. To wipe away a life in a world that can only add weight to what you do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this moment. And I know that, God, there are people in this room right now who you are knocking on the door of their hearts. You are pounding on their hearts at this moment. Because there are people who have stepped into this space coming out of the worst week of their life. There are people in this space that have been battling depression. There are people in this moment that, that God, the only thing that they can say to themselves in light of what they see in the mirror is to spew out hatred toward their own identity. And God, I pray that in this moment, you would give them the courage to trust you. God, to trust you with their life. Not because maybe they're completely convinced of everything that was said this morning, but at least because they can admit that everything they've tried before is not satisfying their hearts. God, I pray that there would be life transformation that takes place in this next 10 minutes. God, that you would give people the courage to step into faith and to receive the gift of life that you have promised by simply trusting in your son. And all they have to do is to simply ask you to be their Lord. To save them from a life of monotony and purposelessness. And to receive the gift that fills in the gap in their heart that is this gaping hole that money and relationships and status cannot fill. 
God, would you do that this morning? God, I pray for those of us in this community, Lord, that maybe are followers of you, but, but perhaps we've been distant from you for some time. God, I pray that this would be a moment of reconnection. A moment, God, where we just open up our hearts. And maybe we don't feel it. Maybe we don't want it. But maybe we're just willing to, to say, I'm willing to open up my heart and see what you will do. To restore what has been lost and what has been broken. God, we commit all of these things to you. We thank you, God, that you don't see us the way the world sees us, the way our friends see us, and that we see ourselves. But you see us for what we are really worth. And that worth is defined by the fact that it cost you your son to beat a path for the rest of us to be back in relationship with you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.